Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Russia, foreign policy, and the new Secretary of State. So, Richard, I'll start you with the sort of news of the hour in Recent days, there have been reports in the press, no official statements, mind you, but reports in the press, supposedly highly sourced, that the CIA has come to the conclusion that Russian meddling in the presidential election, most notably this is the leaking of the DNC emails and the John Podesta emails, that that was intended to benefit Donald Trump in the presidential election, not just to sow seeds of doubt about the American political process as a whole. Now – like, as I said, CIA hasn't said this officially and there are reports that there are other players in the intelligence world that aren't willing to come to such a pronounced conclusion. Uh, the president-elect basically dismissed this out of hand as sour grapes from Democrats. But John Podesta himself has said that members of the Electoral College should get an intelligence briefing prior to casting their votes for president. Richard, help us sort this out. To what extent is there a cause for concern here? Well, there's always a cause for concern when somebody's charged with meddling, even if you don't know what the motive is. One thing I think which might help say the case that, in fact, something has happened is that they probably hacked both the DNC and the Republican National Committee, and they only released the one set of stuff. On the other hand, it's not clear that it was designed to influence the election. It may well have been to try to embarrass her so that she would be as best effective as a president when she and everybody else thought they were run. It's also pretty clear that if you're trying to figure out what actually moved the needle one way or another, I don't think those particular things had a great deal to do with it. Uh, my own sense is that Trump found his voice in the last week with his uh, Drain the Swamp campaign and made a lot of right strategic choices in fighting in the heartland, whereas Clinton made a lot of mistakes in what she had done. Uh, so I think the causation issue is going to be extraordinarily difficult to resolve. It's also the case that you should never, ever, ever uh, take the kinds of doubts that cloud an election with respect to process and use them to essentially try to overturn uh, the decisions that have been made. This issue has come up all the time in connection with the National Labor Relations Board where elections of union officials are often very contentious and management sometimes weighs in. And then you have to figure out if there's fraud made by one side or another in one of these things, whether you set the election aside. And I think the correct answer in virtually every one of these cases is that you don't do it because there are too many things that influence too many people too many times. And no matter what you do, it turns out that you are going to um, essentially make serious mistakes if you intervene. And I would think it would be absolutely chaotic if Mr. Podesta should get his way and Republicans electors would say, gee, we really think that uh, Hillary would have won if this thing had gone correctly, about which they do not know, and so therefore they're going to reverse their votes. You want to create a major political confrontation in the United States, uh, that would be it. And I don't believe that it will happen. I think it was actually rather undiplomatic of him even to suggest this particular situation. And so my own view is I hope that the uh, choice, which I guess is taking place in about December 19th or so, um, will in fact go in the particular 
particular way it's always supposed to go as a non-discretionary vote. In fact, my own view from this is that the one reform that we want to have uh, about the Electoral College now is essentially to abolish it in this sense. What we do is we simply send in the votes and we make it official as the date of the election. If the officials involved are not supposed to have any discretion, why tempt fate if some of them will start to switch their mind? And so I think that we want to have a much tighter connection between the vote in each individual state and the outcome. And there's no reason to wait a month or five weeks in order for this body to meet. You should be able to certify the outcome subject to the usual rules on recount within 24 hours after the election. Let me ask you about the latest point of contention. The day that you and I are recording this, it was officially announced. It's been rumored for a while, but the official announcement came out that Rex Tillerson, who's the CEO of ExxonMobil, a lifer actually at that company, is Donald Trump's choice to be Secretary of State. And he's already being criticized in some quarters for not having any official government foreign policy experience. Obviously, there's an international component to that job, which leads to the second criticism, which is that he's too close to Vladimir Putin, which is a continual source of dyspepsia for some Republicans. John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, they're amongst those who have already expressed some misgivings. Now, we've still got a lot yet to learn about Tillerson, but Richard, what's your initial reaction here? My reaction is similar to that of people like Graham, Rubio, and McCain. Um, I do think that it's very serious on both of these counts. I don't want to sound particularly provincial, and of course I think that many of the uh, Trump appointments or at least nominations that have been subject to harsh criticism are actually pretty good ones. Uh, but when you're dealing with this fellow and making nominations, everything is always going to be high variance, and there'll be some that you'll like and some that you'll pull your hair out of. I don't know that much about Tillerson except his reputation as the head of ExxonMobil, and I think everybody regards him as a superb a superb chief executive, um, very strict, very good on safety issues and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, the company is legendary, I think, for its public discipline. There was at least one story today which repeated what I've heard many times, which is if you talk doing a fire drill, you could be fired by the company and so forth. Strikes me as a bit over the top. I never listen to announcements on the airplanes about how to put the seatbelts in and so forth, <laughs> but it does give you some sense about the way in which the man works. But um, it's a real question about two things. How transferable are these particular skills? Well, we know that Exxon works in international arenas, but it's not as though he's going out and doing all. He may be doing some of these negotiations, but it's always a business, different business running a business where, in fact, you have real power to hire and fire and to control your subordinates and running a safe State Department, which is filled with you know civil servants with a very long period of tenure and a lot of protection, and you have much less discretion on the way in which they run. An analogy is what does it take to move from the business world into running a university? And many people who have been businessmen just don't understand an academic culture where people have tenure, and tenure is somewhat like the civil service type of things that he's going to face. Um, he's going to have to deal with a different set of players. It's not clear how flexible he's going to be. So I would be somewhat concerned about this, um, although obviously I think that the view is let's talk to him further before we make up our minds is clearly correct. On the Putin thing, I agree with John McCain. I mean, uh, anybody who wants to deal with this man other on the ground that he is the scum of the earth is making a huge mistake. This man will lie. This man will cheat. This man will kill. This man will be duplicitous. You're dealing here not with a prospective friend. You're dealing with an enemy. And so essentially, anytime you have to make an arrangement with him, a marriage of convenience, what you have to do is to assume the deal is only worth making if he's going to do the worst possible thing after he makes his promises because his word is not worth the paper that it's written on. And now it turns out Putin gave this guy a medal for entering into Arctic Ex 
exploration deals and so forth. Um, Trump himself, it seems to me, to be a little bit too fascinated with the sort of absolute power that a guy like Putin has. And I don't want him projecting that image onto the United States. So I think that's actually a very powerful objection. And then let's remember this. There are a lot of other people whom you can go to. It does seem as though Tillerson came late on the process. And my guess is that Romney uh, was essentially vetoed by the diehard Trump supporters who say you can't admit a traitor into the academy. Well, then you've got to find somebody else, I think, who could probably do this job. Uh, So I would not be surprised if he gets voted down, at least misses the votes of some of the Republicans. The question is, what are the Democrats going to do? And they could have their reflexive attitude, 48 votes against anybody that the president supplies. I think that's a terrible mistake in terms of attitude, uh, but I would certainly think that they have some reason to be skeptical about uh, Putin and the relationships, and they certainly will be more concerned than I am about the mere fact that it's a big company executive that's doing it. So I think he's in for a rough ride, and I think that the president ought to think that maybe he has to have somebody backing this up. But if he announces that person too quickly, and he's a more attractive alternative, uh, then Tillerson is sure to go down. Thinking about the Trump team more broadly here, there's been a concern in some quarters about the – well, I'll just use the phrase that the left is using here, the creeping militarization of Trump's team. You've got your Hoover colleague, Jim Mattis, who's a retired four-star Marine Corps general. He's been nominated as Secretary of Defense, uh, so recently retired from the military. In fact, that he's going to require a special waiver from Congress to serve in that civilian role. You've got Mike Flynn, who's a retired Army lieutenant general, has been chosen as National Security Advisor. Uh, you've got John Kelly, who's another Marine Corps general. He's going to be the nominee for Secretary of Homeland Security. And there's also been talk – seems to be receding now. There's not many positions left, but there's been talk about a role for David Petraeus. Uh, that pattern trouble you at all, Richard? Well, I mean the pattern doesn't trouble me. I think everybody that I know whom I respect seems to think that Flynn is a highly controversial choice and that he's not to be trusted in many ways. I have no direct knowledge about that, but I'd certainly want to hear these claims investigated. And they seem to be pretty vociferous on the part of many people. Uh, But as we know, the more nasty you get about somebody, the more – Trump's back is going to get up, and I don't think that Flynn needs to be confirmed. Um, I do know Jim Mattis. We're something of friends. I think he's an extraordinary human being, and I'd be delighted to see him take that position. Indeed, I would want him to take any position. If you put him in charge of housing and urban redevelopment, it would be the best-run department in the government. He has that (laughs) extraordinary kind of management ability, toughness of mind, clarity of purpose, and a willingness to learn. He's got a tremendously curious mind. Um, I don't know the other fellow, Kelly, at all. Uh, But obviously, uh, the Homeland Security position is a key one. I don't see that there's anything particularly inappropriate about having an ex-general in that position. I'd rather there be two than three. Uh, But in general, I mean, even with Tillerson, there is a sense that when a president chooses his cabinet, he gets a little bit more discretion, a little bit more, uh, shall we say, accommodation from the Congress than you do when you're appointing judges whose term, for example, could last long beyond the time that the president who appointed him uh, sits in office. So um, I'm always going to be watchful. I think the Senate should exercise a serious oversight responsibility with respect to all of these particular people. Uh, This will be, to some extent, a slight deviation from what happened when Obama first became president, because as I recalled, what happened is the Republicans basically said, give us your big people and we'll confirm them the day that you start to take office so that there's no gap. And I am very worried about the possibility uh, that what we can do is have protracted hearings, which means that major departments would be leaderless 
And I think it would be truly terrible if the Democrats decided to exert every procedural um, opportunity that they have to slow down the appointment of cabinet officials. We should just point out there as a technical matter that in the case of uh, Flynn and only Flynn as the national security advisor, he's actually just a presidential appointment, so won't even be subject That's right. to the no confirmation process. Uh, Richard, anyone who's listened to this podcast over the years that we've been doing it knows how deeply critical you've been of how President Obama has handled foreign policy. How much hope are you allowing yourself at the moment for the Trump administration's foreign policy being a favorable contrast to that of the Obama administration? Well, I mean, the hope rests on one man, Jim Mattis, at least at this particular point in time. I mean, he's described quite famously the Middle East as a strategy-free zone, and we start to see essentially that the dangers of passivity in running this particular operation are really acute. The hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, the 10 million people or so have been dislocated, the carnage that's right now taking place in Aleppo and other situations come from the fact that the United States failed to step in at a time when it might have been able to make some difference. The tragedy is, even if you want to change your position, you can't dial back the clock to 2013, put the red line in place and start over again. You now have to deal with the fact that the Russians have gotten in, have been pretty effective in pursuing their own ends, wiping out the moderates, backing Assad, establishing, I think, a no-fly zone over part of the country. Uh, So our options are necessarily limited. My own guess is that the way in which you try to get to Syria is to slow through Iraq and try to clean that thing up a little bit more rapidly than you've done and to relax the Obama prohibition against troops on the ground. But I think it would be a pretty risky maneuver at this particular point unless you had some very solid backup plan to try to encourage a direct confrontation with the Russians, which is what you might face if you start to move into Syria. So I'm sure there will be a change in strategy, um, but I don't think it's going to start there. My guess is that we will do better in mending our relationships with the Saudis, with the Egyptians, with the Jordanians, probably do a little bit better in moving troops and material back into Eastern Europe, uh, trying to give a little bit more strength to the Ukraine, showing a little bit more guts and muscle with respect to that magic Chinese island in the middle of the South China Sea. I think all of those things are likely to happen, um, but they're going to take a little bit time to do because you're digging yourself out of a hole and you're doing it with, even though you have very formidable military strength in this country, it's certainly relative to all the other countries around the world less dominant than it was five years ago, and that's going to have to be built up. I think Trump, to his credit, wants to build it up. The question of whether it's going to be used intelligently or whether it's going to come quickly enough is, I think, at this point, very open. So let me put it this way. I'm not pessimistic about what the future would bring, but I am under no illusions about how quickly a very difficult situation can be righted. So the last thing I'll ask you then, because you made a passing reference there a moment ago to China, some people, including quite a few in Beijing, scandalized by the fact that President-elect Trump accepted a call from the president of Taiwan. He's now questioning whether the one China policy makes sense unless he can sort of wring some concessions out of Beijing, particularly on the economic front. There are some critics who say that he's basically fumbling around in the dark on this. 
And there are other observers who say, you know, you've got to give the guy some credit. He's the first president in a long time who's been able to sort of get us outside of the box vis-a-vis China. What are your impressions there? On this issue, I'm a strong Trump supporter. I mean, my own view about it is that uh, the debate that we used to have over recognition between uh, 1949 and 1973 or so was, isn't it really ridiculous to say that there is one China, that China is based in Taiwan, and they have a seat on the Security Council? Um, Clearly, if there's going to be a China, it's going to be China on the mainland, and that may be Mao Zedong, but so be it. And I think Richard Nixon was right to do it. Uh, But I think the thought that this is just a province of China uh, sitting there in Taiwan when they have an independent government, an independent military force, American backing, all sorts of subconsular relationships of one sort or another, that's also crazy. And I think what happens is that the Chinese have to be told that recognition is a descriptive matter and not a normative matter, not a political matter. And so long as the these guys operate with effective control over their sovereign state. They will be a nation and we will respect them as such. You can't do it immediately because you've always have to unwind the history. Uh, but the Chinese have been just terrible in virtually everything that they've done. And something which essentially says to them, look, you're going to have to start making some accommodations. We're not going to be backing on our heels as welcome. I mean, the tragedy of China is from every source that I've been able to talk to is that there's been a massive retreat from the openness of the society on matters of speech and tolerance um, over the last 10 years, and they've become a much more dangerous adversary than they've been before. And why would you want to make accommodations with somebody who essentially you can't trust as far as you could throw the mainland? So I think, in fact, this should be one of many things, and one should push them. And if they're going to be offended, so much the better. Uh, But whether it's trade or anything else, they need us as much as we need them. And one of the things to understand about China is a bubble about to burst of their ability to expand through government capital and the allocation of projects through government central control essentially has led to a very unstable situation in which if you go around Beijing, there are these huge buildings that are left empty because you can't figure out who's going to move into them and what they're going to do. Their centralized planning is going to put a lot of pressure on their economy. And when that happens, their political position is going to become, I think, somewhat more vulnerable. All right. Thank you, Richard. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.